So being a parent, I told you I have four kids, and um, Laura says she has five. But um, my wife, and it's tough, you know, it's tough being a parent for a lot of reasons. My oldest one is just getting into high school, and so we're just on a new, there's like new stuff going on that makes it really tough, you know, in terms of boundaries and creating opportunity for them to experience the freedom of, and the responsibility that comes when you get older. But it's tough creating boundaries. You know, it's just like, instead of it's like, hey, don't touch the electric shock, you know, the electric socket, you'll get shocked and can die, or the stove, it's hot. You know, those are just like black and white things. But you get into high school, and it's like dating becomes an issue, texting, how late at night, you know, can they have a Facebook page, how long can they be on the computer? I mean, all of these things that just aren't in Scripture, right? I don't know. I don't know. If I, if I would have written the Bible, I just would have added those things probably, but we know that that can't happen. So, um, but anyway, you know, but even with the younger ones, it's tough. And, and you tell your high schoolers, you tell your older kids, you're like, look, buddy, I love you. You got to trust me. I've been doing this a long time. I know what you're up against. Now, they didn't have Facebook whenever you were da 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 da. It's like, you're right. But I had the Commodore 64, baby, and I was working it, you know? You know, but, um, and so it's hard to get them to believe that I actually love them and that the things I'm telling them, I'm telling them because I love them. And I want you to trust me and trust that, you know, I've been around. I know these things, you know, these are good things. You need to know that these boundaries are, you know, that I'm trying to create are for good. And they, they just look at you like, no, you're trying to enslave me. You're trying, you've built a prison and I am in it as your subject. But even with our little ones, we're dealing with this. All the time, trying to convince them, please, buddy, you got to believe me. You got to trust me. I love you. And when you get your allowance, it's not a good thing to spend it all at the same time on the first day of the month. I mean, how many of us have this conversation with our kids that we give allowance to? Or if we don't give allowance to them or whatever, you give them money and all of a sudden they're like, all right, I wasn't looking for anything to buy, but now I am. I've taken my kids to the grocery store and they want to spend all their allowance on like whatever's on the can section. You know, it doesn't matter where you are. He'll find something. They'll find something to spend their money on. I took, one time I took our kids, I was like at a plumbing store. I know I was at Home Depot, right? Home Depot or Lowe's. And I took one of my kids in there and they had just gotten their allowance. And they're like, they wanted, they were, they had found something at Home Depot. They want to spend all their allowance on. It's crazy. I'm like, buddy, if you spend all your allowance now, then you're not going to have any for the rest of the month. You know, and do you really need an X-Acto razor? Is that really what you spend your money on? But you take them to like Walmart or like, like a, a store like that. You know how much candy you can buy with 10 bucks? A lot. A lot of candy. And one of our kids, I'm not going to say who it is, but one of our kids has a sweet tooth, big time, right? You, can, you, you know who he is because his like lips are always bright blue or red or whatever the flavor of the time is, right? He's walking around. Anyway... So, like, I'll take him to Walmart, and he's, like, immediately just walks over to the candy section, just looking. And you can see him calculating his head. How much candy can I buy with my $10 here? Like, I'm going to spend it all because I have it. And so, sure enough, he, like, comes to the, the counter with, like, 53 pounds of Twizzlers. All right. Here we go, Dad. I want to spend my allowance on the 53 pounds of Twizzlers. I'm like, how much is it? I'm like, he's like, 10 bucks. My allowance. All my allowance. I'm like, buddy, you don't want to do that, you know? A, this much candy is not good for anybody, even you. B, if you spend all your money now, you're not going to have any to buy anything. You know, buy you don't have any money to buy anything at the end of the month. It's like, 
right, Dad, I, I understand what you're saying. I'll take the 53 pounds of Twizzlers, please. You know, and sure enough, he buys the Twizzlers and takes them home, and they're, like, gone in two days. I mean, they're not allowed to eat that much candy, but how he gets rid of that candy without us knowing it when we, like, lock it in a safe, I don't know. I don't know how he does it, but he does it. And there's just something about getting our kids to trust us, trust that we love them, trust that, 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 that we know what's right, you know, that we know these things. But they just don't. They want to do things on their own. And there are consequences. You know, he's got like 57 cavities. we still got to brush his teeth. You know, I mean, and everywhere we go for the rest of the month, hey, Dad, will you get me this lollipop? Will you do this? Will you do this? Will you do this? No, buddy, you spent all your money. You spent all your money on 53 pounds of Twizzlers, remember? 53 pounds of Twizzlers, you remember that? You know, they should be growing out of your ears. You ate so many of them. You don't remember the 53 pounds of Twizzlers you ate in two days? It's like, it doesn't matter. I want to get this. If you love me, Dad, you'll give me this. No, if, if you trusted that I loved you, you would have obeyed me. You would have obeyed what I said because it was right. You know, you try to teach him those things. I'm telling you, parents are like, I know. Why didn't God write that in the Bible? Why isn't Twizzlers in the Bible? You know, God calls us a lot of things. He calls us his ambassadors. He calls us apostles. He calls us disciples and teachers. He calls us all these things. But he also calls us his children. Why? Why do you think he calls us his children? Because we act like children at times. We act like, God, I know you love, or I say I know you love me. I know that you, tr- you, you want me to trust you. I know you've been around a while. I mean, since the beginning. And there's good reason for me to trust you. But God, come on. Really? I mean, I think we both know these, this 53 pounds of Twizzlers is the right thing for me to do, Lord. I mean, come on. And so we do the same thing that our children do, and so he calls us children. He calls us his children, and we like to tie that to the affection of God like he's our father. And, and he, he is, and it is tied to the affection of God, isn't it? But from his perspective, there's this other thing that he's tied it to also. I get tired of telling you guys again and again and again. I give you these boundaries where I say there's life to the full. I give you the law, and I tell you to do this. I do these things. I do that. And I tell you, I know best. And you choose time and time again to do your own thing. Basically, taking the 53 pounds of Twizzlers and blowing everything on it. That's what we do. We do that. And the story of God's people from the beginning was that story. You see, in the beginning, God rescued the nation of Israel from the Egyptians for the purpose, Scripture tells us, so that because they were created to worship him. They weren't made to worship the, the, the gods in Egypt. And so he rescued them from Egypt, made them his own, called them his children, and said, I'm going to show the world what it looks like to live under my rule. I'm going to show the world that I am the living God, the all-powerful God, the one and only God, the God that's above all other gods. And I'm going to use you, nation of Israel, my children, to show the other nations what that looks like. I'm going to be glorified in how I demonstrate my love for you. All you have to do is love me and be loyal to me and trust me. I want you to trust me. I want you to be loyal to me, and I want you to love me. I don't expect for you to be perfect. And because I know you're not going to be perfect, I'm going to give you the law. And the law is going to show you these boundaries. As you obey them, you'll find life, and you'll It'll be easier for you to be loyal to me, and I'll bless you, I'll provide for you, I'll take care of you. You see, that's God's foundation for rescuing, for rescuing Israel was his love for them, demonstrating his love to the whole world through them. And what does Israel say they want to do? I'll take the 53 pounds of Twizzlers. Thank you very much, God. I understand what you're saying. I know you rescued us. And he didn't just rescue them. It's like 
he rescued them in great fashion. I mean, like with the Red Sea parting, there's pillars of fire and smoke, there were the 10 plagues. I mean, he gave them good reason to believe in him and to trust him and to trust that his love for them was just unimaginable and greater than anything that they could come on their own. But the nation of Israel, they saw that, they saw what he did, they forgot, and they said, I'll take the 52 pounds of Twizzlers. And they went their own way. But God, in all of his infinite wisdom, and being a parent, said, you know, I know these guys, these jokers are going to screw up. I know they're not going to live by my laws. And so written into the law was this idea of the year of Jubilee. And you may have heard that in Scripture. I'm going to, tell, I'm going to talk on that just now. I'm going to show you the Scripture in Leviticus 25 that talks about the year of Jubilee. But the year of Jubilee happened every 50 years. Basically, in the middle of the 10th month of the 49th year, they'd blow this shofar and this, this horn, and the Hebrew word for it means jubilee. They'd blow it, and it would mean God's peace has come over the nation. I want to restore my people, remind them of who I am, and restore my land. And so what would happen is, if you, over the last 50 years, you know, went your own way, took the 53 pounds of Twizzlers instead of obeying God, and you became enslaved, all the slaves would, go, would be freed. They'd go back with their families, and they'd be totally free. If you owe debt, financial debt of any kind, you would be released from it, and you go back to zero. So there'd be no more debt in the land. And he said, you know, the reason God did this was because he wanted the people of Israel to know, you don't belong to each other. You don't owe each other. I own everything. Everything belongs to me. I desire only good things for you. And if you live by my laws, you would know this. And so he would do all these crazy things in the year of Jubilee to get his people back to where they were believing in him, trusting in him, and obeying him. I mean, because, he, because one of the things that would happen is that on the 50th year, you would not work at all. You wouldn't do any work. And they would actually do that. They're supposed to do that every seven years. And so they were faced with this problem. What am I going to do for food? They were an agrarian society. And so God said, I'm going to have to provide for you on the sixth year, aren't I? I'm going to have to give you a triple portion to get you through the sixth year, the seventh year you're not supposed to work, and the eighth year that you're planting, right? So three years of food God had to give give them in one year. And so it created, again, this paradigm where the nation of Israel was going to have to trust that God was good, trust that God loved them, trust that, that he was the way forward. And you know what happened? The nation of Israel, you know what they did? They took the 53 pounds of Twizzlers. They never did the year of Jubilee, ever. So not only did they disobey God and weren't obedient to the laws that he gave them and the things that he told them to do, they never did the year of Jubilee. They never did it. Even though he put it in there to kind of a catch-all, to save them. They never did it. And so what happened was, I'm not going to read Leviticus 25. That's one of the things that's going to happen because I just went through the whole thing. You can read it later. It's more specific about what happens in the year of Jubilee. But um, what happened was, what happens when we disobey God? There's consequences to that, isn't there? So we get the 53 pounds of Twizzlers and 57 cavities and every other thing that happens whenever we get the natural consequences. When we're obedient to God, he blesses us. When we're disobedient, there's consequence. In the Old Testament, what happens is the nation of Israel begins to lose their battles. The nation of Israel starts to neglect the poor. The nation of Israel doesn't take care of the widows and the orphans. The nation of Israel starts to fight amongst themselves. The nation of Israel starts to divide and have these wars within themselves that split them apart. 
The nation of Israel starts to have kings that are disobedient to God and worship other idols and marry from outside of the nation of Israel who bring in these other idols. The nation of Israel gets very broken and and fragmented. And ultimately what happens is the Babylonians come. God raises up the Babylonians to conquer one side of the nation. And then he raises up the Assyrians to conquer and capture and enslave the other. So what happens when the nation of Israel is disobedient to God's plan is that they're enslaved. They're captive, they're captured, and they're enslaved and imprisoned. And these other lands are not created to be in. And that's what happens. That's what happens when we take the 53 pounds of Twizzlers instead of being obedient to God. That's what happened to the nation of Israel. We see Isaiah, this has just happened, and Isaiah 59 through 63, in the midst of all of this, Isaiah starts to write, prophetically proclaim and to write down to the people of Israel, his children that are in exile, don't lose hope. God's arm isn't too short to reach you still. Even though you've been disobedient, even though you've done your own thing, even though you've turned away from me, my arm is still, is not too short. My ear has not gone deaf to your cries for mercy, for redemption. And I will redeem you. I will bring you back to myself because I love you more than anything. I love you. And I want to lead you. I want to provide for you. I want to take care of you. And so we read in these chapters between Isaiah 59 to 63, the first 15 verses are the condition of Israel and what God needs them to do to receive this blessing that he desires to pour out on them. And then the next you know, chapters, four chapters, three and a half chapters are about the consequence, the blessings that will follow as the nation of Israel is obedient. And I just want to read those to you. The first 15 verses says this, 59, 1 to 15. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. Their feet run to evil and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know. And there's no justice in their past. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. So again, God's showing them this is the condition of what you've chosen. As you've decided to be disobedient to my law, to the things that I've put in place, when you've chosen to go away from me, not be loyal to me, these are the consequences. And again, God never expected them to be perfect. He just expected them to be loyal, to trust and to love him. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, and behold, darkness. And for brightness, but we walk in gloom. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities. Transgression, tra- transgressing and denying the Lord, and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt. Is that verse 15? Yeah. 
That's 13, but 15 is more of the same. It's more of the same. And so that's the condition of Israel. That's what happens. And when we talk about injustice, we talk about these things happening. Literally, what had happened to the nation, the wives were taken and made prostitutes or concubines to the king. The boys were either killed or they were put into the army of this other king or made slaves. The men, most of them were just killed. There was severe oppression, severe injustice. That's what it looks like to live outside of God's plan. When all the time, what he wants us to know more than anything is that he loves us. He wants us to trust him. But we've taken the 53 pounds of Twizzlers. So he says this to the nation. He says, but don't worry. This is God's plan now. If you do these things, this is what's going to happen. All right? And this is his response. And the rest of the verse, and in verse 17, we see what God's asking for at the very end. The Lord saw it and was displeased with him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a, bless, as a breastplate and a helmet. Don't move this slide. This helmet of, a, of salvation on his head. What do we start to hear? What's happening? Who are they talking about? Boom! Homeboy Jesus. That's right. There's no man. God said he would redeem humanity through a man. Through the line of David. And the Isaiah is foreshadowing the Messiah. God providing for them, okay? And he says there's no one. So he brought his own arm of salvation. God comes to fix the problem because we can't on our own. His righteousness. Whose righteousness? The righteousness is pointing to Christ. They don't even know that yet, okay? He put on righteousness as a breastplate. This is Ephesians 6. What does it look like for the kingdom of God to move forward? Jesus, dressed in armor, fighting for us, winning us back. Go ahead. And here's the biggie. Here's the kicker. That's what he wants. Nope, that's not it. There's one more verse in 59. That's not it. Get rid of that. Get rid of that slide. All right, just leave it. I'll tell you what it says. Verse 17 says this. He put a, he put a helmet into verse 20. And a redeemer, word redeem means someone who buys back what has been lost, what has been stolen. He buys back. Okay? A redeemer will come to Zion, God's people, to those in Jacob who turn from their transgressions, declares the Lord. So what does God require? He's told them all this jacked up stuff. What does he require? To turn from their sin. To turn. They're going this way. And God says, turn from that and come back to me. Come back to the love I have for you. And the word that we use for that is repent. Repent. God says, to experience my blessings, all you have to do is repent. Turn away from the things that you've begun to follow and come back to me. Come back. Please trust that I love you. I'm going to provide this redeemer for you. Someone who's going to shed their blood for you. My arm, my hand is going to rescue you. All you have to do is acknowledge your sin. Repent from that which has taken you away from me and come back to me. And then in verse 60, we start to see this language come. And here is how I will bless you. Arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness on the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. And the nations shall come to your light and the kings to the brightness of your rising. Your people shall be righteous. They shall possess the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. 
The least one shall become a clan. What happens to the least, the last, and the lost when the kingdom of God comes, when the Redeemer comes? What is one of the ways that we reflect that? The poor are taken care of. The needy are taken care of. The widows and the orphans are all taken care of. That's one of the signs that Isaiah prophesies and talks about in other places too. He does that. Okay? Okay, yeah. Okay, the least become a clan. The smallest one a mighty nation. I am the Lord. It's time and I will hasten it. And then in chapter 61, we come to this. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Translation, I have come to proclaim the year of Jubilee, to make things as my Father created them to be, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Where are those words from? Where, where do we see those? Luke 4, 18 and 19, Jesus walking into the temple and saying, this is what I've come to do. Restore the year of the Lord's favor that has been lost. What happens here? Okay, the nation of Israel hears this in exile and they're like, woohoo, physically, I'm going to be released from these nations that have imprisoned me. I'm going to be set free. I'm a captive now, but I'm going to be set free. There's this physical releasing and freedom that comes that they would relate to and they would hear that the oppression that had come on them as God's children from the neighboring nations, they hear that and they're like, this Messiah is going to come and set us free and he's going to conquer these nations and take care of them and we're going to reign. You see how easy it was for the Jews to miss the Messiah? Because Jesus comes on the scene and he says, yep, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, me, because he has anointed me. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, good news to the poor, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Jesus goes on to say, and this is being fulfilled now in me, in me. Jesus, our Redeemer, has come to set us free from the things that that we've become enslaved to. From the things in our life that we have turned to instead of God. And more than anything, God wants to rule over us, to bless us, to provide for us, to protect us. And what happens? What do we do? We're just like Israel. Thank you very much, but I'll take the 53 pounds of Twizzlers, God. That's what we do. And what happens as a result of us being disobedient to God? What happens as a result of us not choosing God's way for our life? Even as his children, we become enslaved. We become enslaved to the things of the world. So Jesus isn't talking about a physical prison here, a a physical captive. He's talking about our hearts being captured. He's talking about our lives being enslaved. And he says, I've come to bring liberty to you guys, to set you free. You say, well, I mean, is that really true? I mean, is that, was that really a response? I mean, there's lots of Christians in the world. I heard there's like a billion Christians in the world. This is how we know it's true. Because we have 827 million children who live in trash dumps around the world. We have 1.4 billion people in the world who live on less than a dollar. Micah came and told us this last night or last week. He talked about the poverty in the world and the brokenness in the world and the widows of the world and the children of the world and the neglect 
that has occurred. Jesus says, this is, and Isaiah says, this is what my kingdom looks like when it moves forward. These things don't exist anymore. They stop being there. Our call to be involved with what God's already doing at Hollybrook, the mentoring program. Why is that? Because we've turned and we've been disobedient. I mean, that's just what God told me. He said, Antley, you've been disobedient. And I think he said your church, but that's between you and him. I think he said that, though. But, but, but the result is, is out there. Look. Look at our lives. Look at our families. Within the church and without the church, the divorce rate's the same now. Why? Because we took the 53 pounds of Twizzlers. That's why. And we're enslaved to these things. And Jesus, the good news again, the words Isaiah said are true for us. Even though you choose these things again and again and again, guess what? My arm's not too long. I mean, is it too short? This is what I desire to do to you. My ears have grown deaf. I love you. I want to bless you. And so when God puts opportunities in front of us, like Hollybrook or like District 9 or like the, what, what, what uh, Mike had talked about last week with all the poor in the world, our response is not, should not be, let's go fix that. That's not what God's doing. God's showing us, here's your response to my love. Your response to not wanting my love, not trusting me, are these conditions. I want you to come back to me. Understand my love first. This is why I've sent Jesus to redeem you. It's to bring you back to me. And then we see everything in front of us as an opportunity to live out the trust that we have for God based on his love for us. Do we believe that that's where life is? And again, the beauty of God, knowing us as his children, knowing that we're going to choose the 53 pounds of Twizzlers, even when we become his children, we're going to choose it again and again and again. As he says, I know you're going to mess up. I know you're going to struggle. So in my plan, just like the year of Jubilee, I've included something in my package that is going to help you. His name is the Holy Spirit. I want you to be led by my spirit. I don't want you to do what you see needs to be done and get ahead of me. I don't want you to do what everyone else is doing. All I require you to do is to be loyal to me. Just do what I've asked you to do. Just do what I've asked you to do. When I open the door, just walk through it. Like Regina, you know, I overheard this, I said this, and this happened. It's not meant to be a guilt fest when we hear about what's happening in the world. Those are all things that reveal our condition our need to return from those things, repent of those things in our life that we've become enslaved to and accept the righteousness that Christ has died to give us. In Titus 3, 3 to 6, it says this, talking to us, to the church. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness of and loving kindness, the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Verse 4 of some chapter and book, I don't know. I wrote it down, didn't write the quote, like where it's from, says this. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. When the goodness and loving kindness of God appeared, he went and 
healed everyone? No. He went and made the poor not poor? No. He went and mentored everyone? No. He went and fed the hungry? No. He went... No. He came to you. He came to you to save you. That's why Jesus came to save you. To get you to believe that the first and most important thing about God's kingdom is his love for you, his desire to provide for you, protect you, and love you, and pull you away from those 53 pounds of Twizzlers that you want to go eat all the time. And he gives us the Holy Spirit, not so that we'll chase these other things around, these other people, look at what other churches are doing. We're only responsible to do what he places in front of us. And he tells us, this is what my kingdom looks like. He gives us boundaries, doesn't us? No, widows are taken care of. There's no one among you. No one among you. No one at River City Church is poor. So he says. No one at River City Church is poor. There's no widow that's not being taken care of. There's no orphan that's not fathered. I've come to seek that which is lost. We're doing evangelism. We're bringing healing to the hearts of people who are enslaved through the power of the Spirit. This is what it looks like for my kingdom to come. But I don't want you to go do it if you don't love me. If you don't understand my love for you, it's going to burn up. If you're not doing it because you love me, it's going to burn up. You see, many of us, I don't know a lot about golf, but many of us, I do know a little. And I've tried to teach my kids this. And what you realize whenever it comes to golf is every once in a while, you can hit a ball straight. But if you don't develop a good swing and you don't have the right mechanics, you're not going to hit the ball straight consistently. And so in the mechanics of golf, here are a few things that you have to do to make sure that you hit the ball straight every time. The first thing is you have to have a good grip. Then you have to have a good stance. The ball's got to be in the right place. Your head can't move whenever you swing the club or you aren't going to hit the ball square. Okay, when you come back, when you come, bam, when you come back, Again, your head has to stay still. You want to bring the club back straight. And when you're going to cock it, you want your wrist to be flat like this. You want this to point down to try where you're going to bring the club head through. And then you want to swing with the down. You want to pull down with your right arm. Your left arm really guides it. And the ball, when you hit the ball, the club head has to be square for the ball to go straight. It has to be. If it's not, you're either going to slice it, it's going to go to the right, or you're going to pull it, it's going to go to the left. Oh, by the way, if you slid in front of the ball, you're going to pull it this way. If you're behind the ball, you're going to push it that way. And if you don't hit the ball exactly where you're supposed to, on the top of the ball, it's going to go like this. If you hit it under the ball, it's going to go like this. Looks complicated, right? So I tell my kids all this, and they go, Dad, just shut up. Let me hit the ball. (laughs) Go ahead. Grip it and rip it. And you know what happens? One in about 100 shots, they hit the ball straight, and they're like, see, I told you. You know what I'm interested in? I want them to see all the different mechanics that are involved in golf so that they get a good swing and they hit the ball straight every time. You see, God gives us the Holy Spirit because he knows that every once in a while, we're going to get it right if we're just on our own doing it. But usually we're going to miss him. We're going to get it wrong. And we're going to look at what other people are doing. We're going to do what feels natural to us. And we're just going to go out on our own, motivated by guilt and condemnation. But God says, no, I love you. I've given you my spirit to lead you. If you understand my love for you and my spirit, then he will show you the mechanics of what your life in Christ should look like 
It's different from everyone else. But as you understand those mechanics, as you allow him to lead you, you're going to hit the ball straight more and more and more. And you're going to say, you know what? I don't want those Twizzlers. I don't want those Twizzlers. Because I like the way God uses me to play his game. For some of us today, the Holy Spirit wants us to repent. Again, it's not often that I tell you guys because of the nature of the people we draw to our church, broken, lost, wounded, hurting people. I always want to be sensitive to them as I speak to you. But here's the reality. The conditions that exist in our families, our lives, our marriages, our children, the places that God calls inside the church to minister and outside the church, the reason those exist is because we have become enslaved to things of the world and we need to repent. We need to turn away from those things. Why? God doesn't want us to be guilty. He wants us to hit the ball straight. He wants us to come back under the love relationship. He wants to be king and ruler over all of our life. He sent Christ, our redeemer. Jesus has purchased our salvation. He's bought us back. And God wants to bring us back. So for some of us, the spirit's moving right now. He's convicting your heart, yeah? There's those things in my life that I need to repent of, ask for forgiveness for, and be healed, be set free from. Just take what already belongs to me that Jesus has purchased for me. I need to take that back. I've been bought back. I need to repent. For some of you, I think that more than anything, God wants you to understand his call for us as a church, his call for you into social justice. If you sign up for the mentoring program or you want to go move to Africa and help and live in one of the dumps or in Costa Rica or wherever, he wants you to, you have to understand this. It's about love. It's about his love for you. Do you understand the love that he has for you? Do you, have you received that love and are you being led by the Holy Spirit to do these things? Because if you're not, then you're going to be burdened with guilt and condemnation. And ultimately, you're going to start slicing the ball and not hitting it. Your relationship with God's going to be off. And God wants to pour out his love on you today. The last thing is this. What is preventing you from trusting God with all of your life? Not the things that are enslaved, have enslaved you. But what are the things that God's presented you and you've said, I'd like to do that, but I just can't. For example, I'm talking about, this is just an example. This, oh, I'm not going to use this example because um, you, uh, you hear uh, Micah talk about um, the problem in Africa. And you go read about it, and, you're, and something's resonating in you about all the children that are living in dumps or living on less than a dollar a day. Something rising up in you and saying, gosh, I could give money to that. I want to I wanna resource that. I can't move there, but I want to resource that with my finances. And there's something in you you feel like is right about that. You feel God moving in that. And then you go home, and you go, oh, man. But you look at your checkbook, you're like, I don't have any money. I can't do that. What you see is preventing you from being obedient to trusting God, what is unseen, trusting that God's going to provide for you. And so, again, I don't know what God's saying to you about all that God's moving in our church right now, but one of the questions you need to ask yourself is, what is my response to what God is doing at RCC? What is my responsibility? As part of my family, what am I supposed to be doing? And I want to ask you the question, what's preventing you from trusting God? And allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you about that this morning. Okay? So let's stand would invite you forward for any of those three reasons or any reason that you might 
want to receive prayer. If you want prayer for healing, we'd love to pray for you over by the cross.